We are in a sermon series called Messy Relationships. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it on or open it up, get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we'll get there here in just a few moments. Uh, if you're a guest, uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here. I get the privilege of teaching and uh, would love to get to know you. So I'm going to hang out in the lobby right out here uh, after the service. Would love to meet you uh, and talk to you. And if you're a guest, don't forget we've got a gift for you right in the back. You walk out these back doors, right around the lobby, get some coffee, hang out, get to know us. We want to be pretty relaxed around here. Uh, we'd just love to hear your story and uh, get you connected to our church as best we can. Um, one bit of uh, housekeeping, if you will. Um, on March the 26th, Sunday, March 26th, after third service, we're going to have a congregational meeting. Um, we're, anyone's welcome to come to this, but uh, we really want to encourage anyone who's a member at New Hope to attend this meeting uh, in, a, in a couple weeks. The, the purpose of the meeting. Um, we're, you see this new construction. You're coming in through the front uh, doors now, and God has blessed us in so many ways. And so uh, one of them, one of the reasons is we want to communicate the status of the REACH initiative. Uh, you see, the REACH initiative was, it's a two-year project that our church um, has committed to uh, financially, but it's got multiple facets to it. Uh, the building is one part of it, and so the congregational meeting, we're going to look at um, year two of the REACH initiative financially. What does it look like? What are some things we need to consider? And so all members are encouraged to attend that meeting uh, so just come hang out. Uh, you come to church, you go to a class. You see how that works? We're tricking you into it. And then come and hang out uh, after third service right back here in the auditorium. If you've got questions or anything, just contact the church office. We'd be glad to answer them. Um, so there you go. Now we're going to transition right into our message this morning. I want to pray for us, ask the Lord to speak very clearly to our hearts through his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you are meeting us here. God, thank you that you that you clearly speak to us through your word. And so as we open up uh, the Bible this morning, uh, seeking to learn more about how we are to relate to one another, I pray that your truth would pierce our hearts, that we would learn something about Jesus today so that we can walk out of here a little bit different than when we arrived, that we would apply that teaching to our lives this week and that our relationships would flourish because of Jesus. And we offer you this prayer in his name. Amen. Um, I was reading this week about um, the Mona Lisa, because that's what I normally read about, fine art. Uh, not really, but I did come across this uh, fascinating uh, piece about the Mona Lisa, because it's such an attractive piece of art. People are drawn to it, because it looks so lifelike. And because of the time period in which it was painted, that's a very difficult task to accomplish. As a matter of fact, according to many people, you can't pick up a single brushstroke in the Mona Lisa with the naked eye. And that is because um, Leonardo da Vinci at the time used the smallest paintbrush ever used to paint the Mona Lisa. As a matter of fact, um, there was a scientist, Pascal Cote, who scanned the painting with a 240 megapixel multispectral imaging camera. We've got a few of them hanging out in the back. Uh, it uses 13 wavelengths from ultraviolet light to infrared to scan the Mona Lisa and found a single brushstroke up by the eyebrow. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable piece of work. And so what, what fascinates me is the attention to detail. I'm using the smallest paintbrush. And what most people think that the Mona Lisa probably took, a lot of people think it took 20 plus years to paint, but most uh, scholars that I could find agree that it took uh, Leonardo da Vinci around 12 years to paint the Mona Lisa. Think about that. 12 years. I rush through stick figures like crazy. I, can't, I don't have the patience for 12 years, but you just think about this. Over the long period of time that it took him to not cut any corners, in the small moments when no one was around, he paid attention to the smallest details, and it paid off. 
He created a masterpiece that the world is still uh, just completely blown away by. Here's the point. When it comes to these messy relationships in our lives, here's what I want you to grab onto in this series. A masterpiece of a life well-lived with relationships that flourish is determined by the consistency of character in the small moments over a long period of time. You know, whether you follow Jesus or, or not, I think you would agree that this is true. Great relationships take great time. They just do. You see, the longer that you're married and intentional in that marriage, the better you get to know somebody. This is why uh, later on in life, when you talk to someone who's experienced a 50- or 60-year wedding anniversary, and they still talk about how they're still getting to know one another. Because we're not the same people that we were in the past, and we're continually growing and maturing. And so great relationships, when you relate to somebody, it takes great time. But it's built in the character and the consistency of the smaller moments. See, if you're like me, I'm always looking for big moments. As a matter of fact, my wife and I recently talked about how uh, we have a nine-year-old son, a seven-year-old daughter, uh, a five-year-old son, or he'll be five this next week, and then uh, a newborn. And I want their 10th birthday to be special. And so I always want to take them, I want to take them on a big trip. And so we're trying to think next year for Caleb's trip, where's he going with dad to have this big moment? But, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having the big trip and doing the big thing with dad. But I would be mistaken and easily mistaken to think that my parenting would excel and be incredible based on a few big moments. When in reality, the strength of my fatherhood with my children, the strength of my parenting with my kids is built in the everyday small moments over a long period of time, being consistent. I'd say the same is true of every relationship in our life. You can have big moments, and they're good. You should have big moments. You should have big celebratory moments that are, are they, they're burned into your memory as great memories that see you through difficult times. Yes and amen. But it's in the everyday small stuff that people don't see that the strength of a relationship is built. This is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians, especially in chapter 13. If you remember last week, we talked about the city of Corinth. And we said that this city, it's a small city, a four-mile stretch. This is how, long this, how big the city was between two bodies of water. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, Corinth was only a few generations old. So people that lived there, there was no deep roots, no family traditions. There wasn't a long history in Corinth. As a matter of fact, the city was known as for commerce. And so people would come and they would live there very temporarily in order to make it big. It's very like one of our major cities, New York City or Los Angeles. Someone leaves a small town and they go to the big city to make it big. That's Corinth. So it attracted all kinds of talent and abilities, people that had ambition and drive, people that wanted to make it, people that were willing to work hard and do whatever it took. And so you plant a church in a city like this, and inevitably the church is going to be composed of people with a lot of ambition and a lot of talent, a lot of drive. And what begins to take place is you get competitive. You, get, you begin to look like the culture that's around you, to be impacted by the culture that's around you. And the culture around them, much like the culture around us today, was telling them that their self-worth was determined by what they were able to accomplish, how hard they worked, how hard they, they were willing to grind to get the results. And if you're willing to work hard, you're willing to, then you're going to be a worthy person. Your self-worth is determined by what you accomplish. And so that begins to sink into the church and their relationships get messy. You got marriages that are falling apart. You got households that are completely uh, falling apart and looking horrible in this church. Uh, you've got people competing with one another. You've got the rich mistreating the poor. You've got racial issues in the church. You've got all kinds of problems based on the fact that these people, every other hour of their week, were forced to believe that their self worth and value was determined by what they accomplished in their life. And so Paul sits down to write a letter to them. 
And I do not think that when he got to chapter 13, which there was no chapter 13, but when he got to this section of the letter we call chapter 13, I don't think he was thinking to himself, I wonder what I can say about love. And he, he began to write poetically about what would be remembered for years about this great thing that God has given us called love. He's not doing that. I th- in fact, I think if, if, you were, if we were sitting in the church in Corinth receiving this letter from Paul, when he got to the section where he talked about love, it would not inspire us. It would convict us to our core. Because when Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, he starts to talk about all of the talents that they did have. If I have the faith, is to remove mountains. If I have leadership skills and I'm, I'm able to do all of these things, all of these talents, but I don't have character and I don't have love, then I'm nothing. He says, you might have the big moments figured out, but you're not being consistent in the small moments. And in the long run, that equates to a pretty messy relationship all across the board. Then he gets to chapter 13, verse 4, and he begins to list out the character qualities that matter, the ones that in the small moments equate to very big results, that when we pour our attention into following Jesus, these are the character traits that he develops in our heart that help our relationships a ton. And so the first one was this. We said that love is patient. And David did a great job kind of defining that as viewing other people in the long run, viewing other people through the lens that God sees them. So viewing someone else the way that God sees them, that they are a son or a daughter of the king, and we should be patient and relating to them as though we were relating to the daughter or the son of a king. And then we said love is kind, and we define that with Paul's own words out of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. As you relate to all people, don't, don't be selfish and don't pursue your own desires. But in humility, Paul says, consider other people more important than yourself. And so as I relate to my friends and my kids and and parents, and as you relate to uh, your spouse and as you relate to coworkers, when you look at them, can you come to the place where you consider their needs more important than your own? That's true biblical kindness. That doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you let people step over you. You actually consider what what, what is best for this person. And in kindness, I'm willing to do the hard thing and give them what they need to get closer to Jesus. Now Paul continues... And he starts to deal with this thing that really is a product of a competitive culture. When you go to work or when you are in life and everything is about how you compare to other people, that your success is determined by your comparison to the people around you, whether coworkers or siblings, right? And you've ever heard somebody say, I grew up in the shadow of because my whole life I was compared to, right? Or or somebody at work, like no matter how hard I work, it it doesn't equate to what this person's able to accomplish, You see, a competitive culture will naturally produce, if you're not careful, what Paul calls envy. And so he moves on in this thing, in in, in this uh, list of characteristics, and he says, hey, love is patient and it's kind, and love doesn't envy. It doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. Now, envy, it's a fascinating word here. Um, It's the same word that Paul uses for zeal. It's the Greek word zelo. I want you all to say this with me. On three. One, two, three. Zelo. There you go. You're with me. So he says it's zelo, and it can be used good and bad, okay? In the Greek, it can, it can be used to define what uh, the Bible would say is zeal, which is a deep commitment to something. So if I'm deeply committed to something or someone, I have zeal. Zeal is a good thing. In fact, Paul, just a few verses above chapter 13 and chapter 12, he said this, be earn- I want you to earnestly desire, or I want you to earnestly zelo the higher gifts, And so Paul affirmed this. We should have zeal. We should be passionate about things. We should be deeply committed to things. 
But he says in the same respect, if you're not careful, that same zeal can um, also become envy. And envy is not a, a commitment to something, it's actually a resentment against someone. Because you begin to desire what they have, or what they've accomplished, or what they've been blessed with. And you begin to desire it to the point where there's a roadblock that's put in between you and your ability to have a relationship with this person. Because you're envying them. You're coveting what they have. You, you want what they have or you want them to get, not get what they do have. You see, envy's been a problem since the beginning of creation. When God created man, he created Adam and he created Eve and they had children. And their children's names were Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, they had a, a big issue with envy. You see, God came to Cain and Abel, Abel and he gave them each the opportunity to be faithful. The same opportunity. Abel was, Cain wasn't. As a result, Cain began to envy Abel. The envy turned to resentment. The resentment turned to hatred. The hatred turned to anger, and he acted out in his anger, and he killed his brother. It all could have been dealt with, with repentance and a conversation with the Lord, festered and developed inside of them. Now, this is the same issue we have today. Relationships today, they're defined by how we compete and compare with one another, from the size and decor of our house, to the sports games of our kids, to the, games, to the grades that we accomplish in college, to the cars that we drive, the income that we get. We're always trying to one-up each other with a better story, a better deal, the better job, cook the better meal, preach the better sermons, raise the better kids, take the better picture for Instagram, get more likes, get more people to know you, make more money, and the list goes on and on and on. Howard Hendricks once said this, comparison is the favorite indoor sport of Christians. I mean, we are always comparing ourselves to somebody else. We're always, in fact, in between services, I had somebody come up and say, hey, we were talking about this in our group not long ago, and there was somebody in our group. Uh, we have discipleship groups. If you're not in one, you should be, sign up. Uh, but uh, there it is. There's the plug. Is that fair? Um, I, I just believe in them. They're, they're really good. But this person said, hey, I'm fine when I'm looking down. The house that I have is sufficient. Uh, the clothes that I have, the food, I've got everything I need. I'm fine until I look up. And I start to look around me and I see, and all of a sudden I see what other people have and all of a sudden my house isn't good enough. My clothes aren't good enough. My money's not good enough. My job's not good enough. I begin to envy them. And when we envy other people, there's a roadblock. You cannot develop a deep relationship with them. You can't. Let me try to illustrate it for you this way. As we begin to, to relate to other people, uh, God has given each of us a gift. When you were born, God gave you an identity. The Bible calls it the Imago Dei. The image of God. He instilled that in you. And out of that image, you can, you can flourish in your relationships when you understand how God sees you. The relationships around you will flourish. But somewhere along the line, we experience the results and the consequences of sin. And sin begins to put a ring around self of guilt and shame. They're slightly different. You see, guilt's circumstantial. I can feel guilty for doing something and seek uh, an apology. In fact, just last night, I'm guilty of finally hitting that moment where my son would not sleep, my newborn. And for three weeks, he hasn't done it. And for three weeks, it hasn't been a big deal. But for some reason last night, I hit that wall. It's the wall that parents know about, or they deny it and not tell the truth. But it is a wall that we hit, and I hit that wall. He wasn't sleeping. And in a moment, I yelled out, would you just go to sleep? And he responded, well, yes, Father. All you had to do was ask. No, he, of course not. <laughs> he just kept screaming. It didn't help anything. just made my wife frustrated with me. She's up, too. She's up more than I am. And, I'm, and so guilt for that this morning, before leaving the house early this morning, she was up with him still. 
And I said, hey, I just need to apologize to you. I feel really guilty about that. I'm sorry. That was uncalled for. That's guilt. Shame's slightly different. When we experience shame based on the sins that we commit or the sins that are committed against us, it attacks our identity. We actually start to believe lies that go in their counter to the image of God that he instilled in us. We begin to believe things that aren't true about ourselves, that we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not strong enough, we don't make enough money, you're not worthy, God can never use you, your sin has disqualified you. And you actually begin to, de- to believe that lie about yourself, and so now you, all of the relationships in your life, they're coming out of the result of shame and guilt, not the Imago Dei. And so how, what do we do? Well, we deflect, and we protect people seeing shame and guilt by guarding it with our personalities. Look at this chart. It'll illustrate it for you. See, we have our self, and out of self, great relationships can happen when you see you the way that God sees you. But our shame and guilt, they protect us from showing that to people. And we begin to believe those lies, so we don't even see ourselves the way that God sees us. And we believe those lies, and and our relationships are formed out of that, and that creates a lot of messy relationships. Why? Because we guard it with our personality. We get competitive or we, we, we're prideful or we start envying other people and what they have. And our attention goes so far away from the way the Lord sees us to how we see everything else. And we try to control everything with our personality. See, personality is not a bad thing. It's just a bad thing when it's a reflection of shame and guilt. Personality is a gift when it flows out of the Imago Dei. But it creates messy relationships when it's just our shame and guilt that we're carrying around and we're trying to protect. Now, here's what happens. That you begin to believe the lies and you push people away. Or at best, friends, at best, we have shallow, shallow, weak relationships with other people because no one ever gets to see the real us. Because we're so terrified of them seeing what we're ashamed of and the lies that we believe about ourselves that we project an image. And the whole time we spend envying other people. I mean, this is the story of Cain and Abel. God comes to Cain and Abel and he tells them, I want a sacrifice. At that moment, they are on a level playing ground. They have an opportunity. This is in Genesis 4, if you want to read this later. They have an opportunity to both be faithful to their calling. Abel decides to paint with the small paintbrush. He decides to pay attention to the finer detail to create a masterpiece of an offering to enhance his relationship with the Lord. And so that's exactly what he does. And he presents this incredible offering, and the Lord accepts it, and it's a blessing. And Cain decides not to. He cuts corners, makes it easy, pushes things out, and makes an offering to the Lord trying to just scoot by. And God does not accept that offering. And instead of repenting, he believes the lies the enemy began to tell him. God loves Abel more than you. God can use him better than he can use you. You're not good enough. And out of that shame, he begins to envy his brother. And he envies his brother to the point where he resents him because envy almost always leads to resentment. And then he's angry and he's hateful and he follows his brother out into a field and he kills him. God calls him back and says, what have you done? And his response is to project a personality of pride out of his shame. And he says, what am I, my brother's keeper? And God says, the blood in the soil cries out to me. Um, you're out. He, he casts him out. And Cain's response is, if you send me over there, they will kill me. Why is that? Have you, you ever watched a good murder mystery or a good uh, drama on television where somebody commits a horrible crime? I'm not endorsing these, but anyone, <laughs> they, they commit a horrible crime, and then they flee from the authorities, and they're in some foreign land. And they get to this foreign land where no one knows them, no one knows what they've done, no one knows anything, but their whole life they're spent just looking over their shoulder. Everybody knows, everybody knows. What is that? 
No one knows. They weren't there. You're in another country. It's the shame that you've begun to believe about yourself. And Cain was worried because he was basing his entire identity, his self-worth on his shame, not the Imago Dei, not the image of God instilled in him. And so he pushes back, and he ends up going. And it's a, it's a picture of our lives, friends. You see, this plays out in our lives all the time. Social media, right? You begin to look at images online. Social media can be a good thing. I'm not condemning social media, but it's a dangerous thing, friends. And for, you, for one moment to think it's not, you're being deceived. Social media is dangerous because people project images that we look at. And we begin to see these images and we begin to envy that this person has success or this person's been blessed with something or this family looks so perfect. I mean, recently we had a friend come over and, and, and take some pictures of our family and we posted them online. They're great pictures. What you didn't see is that you see the one out of the 197 it took to get that shot. Of course we're posting the one. Like, of course. Because now you like it and that releases endorphins in our brains and we feel good. And we base our self-worth on how many likes you put on the images of our family. All cards on the table. That's the purpose of it. Until we see someone's picture who's better. And we begin to envy it. And we start saying, well, we need to plan family pictures again. We've got to one-up them. (laughs) That's how it works over and over and over again. We see things in our lives that we just want what other people have. And you begin to envy them. And what happens when you envy people, even through social media, a roadblock is put between you and them, and there is no chance for the depth of a healthy, good relationship. That relationship will always be messy. And you'll fake it. Oh, you can fake it with the best of them because they'll come up to you and say, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm doing great. Things are good. I love you. I'm so, of those pictures online you posted, they were awesome. They leave you like, I hate them. Why do they always have perfect pictures? I can't stand it. Why? Why Why is that? Because that's, that's envy. Instead of just focusing on who God made you to be. We focus on what God's doing in other people's lives. What about success at work or even at church? I'm going all out this morning. So <laughs> at, and when you have success, when someone else at work has success, I mean, yeah, they worked hard and they get noticed, they get a promotion, they make a little bit more money, they get a raise, they get recognized and you didn't. And you're not mad because you think that they didn't deserve it. You're mad because you feel like you're working just as hard and it's going unnoticed. It doesn't matter how hard you work or what you try to accomplish. It just seems like I don't get noticed. They get noticed. They get everything they want. You begin to envy this person, and then you begin to resent that person, and then before you know it, your anger comes into play before hatred comes in, and it just kills the relationships. What about in church? You're in church, and there's a family that seems to be serving together. Things are going well, and you wonder why your family isn't as connected as that family or why that person isn't. uh, why, Why don't they lean on me for that kind of information? Why don't I get chosen? Why don't I get picked? And instead of focusing on what the Lord has called you to do, You spend all of your time focusing on what God's doing in someone else's life and you develop envy, which leads to resentment and anger and hatred. The same thing's true in relationships. You look at your marriage. Why can't my husband act this way? Why can't my wife act this way? Why can't I have this? Why can't... And we begin to envy other people only to develop resentment toward our spouse, toward other people. Let me me hit home for some people. What about even in your own home? You grow up, your kids are growing up, and all of a sudden there's a special bond between father and son or mother and son or father and daughter and you're the other spouse and you're watching this connection and it's like this is awesome but why won't they tell me the things they tell my husband or my wife why won't they confide in me why won't why won't my i i love my son i love my daughter he wasn't up with you nursing you in the middle of the night he was sleeping through it all of it but why don't you connect with me and and we begin to what we begin to even resent our own spouse instead of being grateful for the connection that they have with their children we resent it because it's not ours an envy and a messy marriage starts to happen. 
Friends, can I offer you this? Just a side note. Something that's been heavy on my heart lately. We've got to stop passing this envy culture onto our children. We've got to stop it. Our kids are growing up. So many kids are growing up basing their entire self-worth on how they compare to other people. It's unbelievable to me. Your kid comes home from school and they're like, look at how, I, how well I did on this art project or how good I did on this test. And if you're asking them, how did your other classmates do? What was the average median grade? Where was the curve? How, how did they do? You're, you're like, what in the world? Instead of just listening, saying, good job, you did good. They come home from practice and they say, you won't believe I did so good at practice. This is what I was able to do. It was such a good time. And if you're like, yeah, but how did so-and-so do? And how did so-and-so do? And what you don't realize is that you're putting in them a natural need to compare their success to others in order to gain self-worth. And it's killing their relationships as they grow older. There's nothing wrong with competition. Don't hear that wrong. There's something absolutely wrong when competition defines self-worth. We've got to do a better job of instilling in our young people that their self-worth comes from the Imago Dei, not their shame and guilt. This is what Paul wants us to do in our relationships. So how do we do it? I'm going to give you one truth and three practical ways to apply it. One truth from Scripture and three ways that you can apply it. The, first, the truth is this. To overcome envy in all situations, you must begin to see yourself as God sees you. That sounds so easy and it's so hard. I've found that my biggest struggle is not loving God. I love God. I would go anywhere and do anything for God. My biggest struggle is letting him love me because of my shame and my guilt. So many Christians, we get grace in our head. Jesus died on a cross and he forgave me my sins and I have access to the Father and that is incredible. It's in their heads, but they haven't let it travel to their hearts and they continue to believe the lies of the enemy. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. God chose them because they're better. And instead of focusing on who he made you to be, you focus on everything that's going on around you. It's difficult. Do you believe in your heart that God is crazy about you? That he looks at you like a good father and he has great dreams and plans for you? I love what St. Augustine said. He said this, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. How great is that? God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Listen to what scripture says about God and how he feels about you. Psalm 35, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. He delights in you. Our steps are made firm, Psalm 37, by the Lord when he delights in our way. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He delights in you. He's crazy about you. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with, the vict with victory. God is crazy about you. I'm going to illustrate it this way. Uh, my wife's going to bring uh, my son Noah in a food coma. <laughs> He's, I'm going to grab him here real quick. You can hear him. Yeah, that's awesome. This is Noah. Hey, buddy. Bear with me, bud. Noah was born three weeks ago. And the same thing happened when he was born that happens when all four of them were born. They came out. It's going to be hard. <laughs> and the doctor handed them to me. And the first moment that he touched my hands, just like with his brothers and his sister, <laughs> he did that. And then I looked at him. And two thoughts come to my mind every time, all four times. It's unbelievable to me. 
The first thought is, man, I miss my mom. I wish she could be here. The second one is this. The world needs you, buddy. The world needs you. Needs you to be consistent in the small moments to develop integrity and be a man that chases Jesus. And every time this passage out of Zephaniah 3 comes to my mind, and I think, the Lord your God is with you, Noah. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and he will exalt over you with singing. See, this is incredible to me because in those moments, I realize this is how God sees me. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. And the enemy wants you to believe all those lies, and he just wants to look at you and say, no, I've got great plans. Nothing you've done disqualifies you. Nothing. Don't envy other people. I've given you my image inside of you. Pass them off. Anybody want? I'm kidding. Don't touch them. (laughs) God sees each of us and loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Three things that you can do this week to begin to see yourself as God sees you. The first is this. Saturate yourself with his word. I I mean, I can't overemphasize this. Get the Read Scripture app. Join in with us. We just started Judges. Start reading the scriptures with us because that's what will transform your mind. Transform your mind like nothing else and you will begin to be able to diffuse the lies of the enemy as they come in against the promises of scripture. And you can remember that the Lord your God delights in you. Number two is this. Spend time in his presence. I mean linger in his presence. Find yourself losing sight of time in his presence. Meditate on how good he is. Find that place where you can watch the sunrise or sunset. Find that place where you can sit in your car and listen to worship music and just think about how good he has been. Because it's time spent that changes everything. You want to experience the presence of the Lord. Spend time with him. and He will meet you in those moments. Linger in his presence. And it will transform everything for you. You want the confidence in the weak moments. Develop time in the presence of God so he can give you the strength when you feel distant and the enemy attacks that you can remember the goodness of spending time with him. The third one's a little more difficult. Express honor. Show honor to the people who you're tempted to envy. I've struggled with envy a lot. Ministry, it's easy. Leadership is a lonely place. And it's hard. And you look at what other people are doing and you begin to envy it. And just recently, I had a profound truth offered to me. Why don't you start cheering instead of envying? And so all of these, all over the country, all these different places where you might envy, if you're in leadership, you begin to look at and cheer for. And it's, in, it's incredible what the Lord does when you cheer for the people you're tempted to envy. You celebrate. You're reminded that when I don't and I envy them, it's as if God is looking at me and saying, hey, do you want me to take them off our team? You want me to do away with them? And no then will you celebrate that they're on our team? That they're, they're with us. And I'm going to use them to do great things. And what I've found is when you allow God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, to impact your heart and to see yourself as God sees you by spending time in his word and in his presence, you find yourself joyfully cheering for the people who you might be tempted to envy. Will you allow that to happen to you this week? Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much. What an incredible thought that through Jesus, you, you look at us like I look at Noah. You look at us and you love us as though there were only one of us. What do we have to envy when we've experienced the joy and love of the Father? We have all that we need in Christ. May that truth penetrate our heart this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.